Hi, and welcome to Marion Methodist. Thank you for joining us for worship today. My name is Alyssa Friday, and I am a part of the student leadership team and an intern here at the church. The scripture for today is Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through verse 22, and it reads, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. To whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you please pray with me for Pastor Mike? Dear God, I pray for Pastor Mike today, that you would bless his words and speak through him to bless the hearts and ears of everyone here and, every, and, and at home. I pray that as you speak your word through Pastor Mike today, that it, that it will, would be soaked into the hearts of the congregation and help us all grow closer to you and speak to us all individually. I pray that you bless Pastor Mike's heart, mind, and soul. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. You are crazy, Mike. One of my best pastoral friends said that to me right on a Zoom call. He could see my face. I could see him. He says, you're crazy, Mike. He says, let me get this right. Here we are in the middle of COVID in a tumultuous political season where we have racial tensions tearing against our country. There's economic uncertainty all around us. And you plan to, to preach five weeks on the apocalypse, the end of the world? I'm like, yep. <laughs> he says, okay. You're crazy, but I'll try to keep room for you on my custodial staff. So, well, I, I hope very much to keep this position. And because so many people are wondering, are we at the edge of the end of the world right now? I think it's incumbent upon me to speak about that and speak into that. Several of you wondered throughout the summer and throughout the spring about this one biblical text from 2 Chronicles verse 13 that reads like this. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, and you read that and you began to wonder, is that happening right now? Is this all coming true in 2020? Is it happening? Well, let's take a look at some evidence. Let's look at this picture. You, you, you see when the heavens shut, there's a drought. It's a worldwide drought. Many months without rain in many places. Persistent uh, dryness. And what is the outcome of drought? Fires everywhere. First, the continent of Australia, the whole ring around it was burning down. Then California. Now Colorado is burning both ends towards its middle. And, and what is the, one of the outcomes of that? Well, the locusts. 
Look at the locusts everywhere. 10 billion locusts descended in Kenya in one place. 10 billion, think about that number, and ravished thousands of acres in a matter of moments. And other large swarms, like this picture you see from a fellow in Kenya, have been spotted across Asia and are now moving into other continents. And acres and acres of devastated crops are popping up. And then look at what happened to us. I mean, this drecho hit, this hurricane-force wind with rain that came with it, devastating crops, homes, and flora all around us. Our tree pop canopy has been knocked to, to, to about half of its population. At the same time, we had hurricanes in the America's South all over the, the, the Caribbean Sea. And, and guess what? Worst of all, it's all mid-plague. You know this picture, don't you? I mean, this is a picture none of us saw before a few months ago. Now we all know it. So the question came to me more than once, more than a dozen times, what are we to make of all these signs? What does all this mean? Well, let's stop for a minute and say this. They're all real. They're all around us. And they have prompted a dozen or more of you to email me, come by, brimming with these questions that basically funnel down to in these difficult times, is this the end of the world? And what do we believe about that? What do we believe about the end of the world? Well, let me start with some basic Christian thought. I like truth. Yes. Yes. Christians believe that in a moment of God's own choosing, God will collapse the world as we know it, and this world, everything we know, everything we see, we'll come to a conclusion. Now, very importantly, so don't miss this part, the end of this world, as told by Jesus himself, as told by the prophets, as told by every piece of apocalyptic text that we have in the ancient world, is actually a replacement story. We get so focused in and funnel into the destruction, we miss the main actual point. This world ends so that God can replace it with his perfectly righteous, wonderful, and sin-free, void of evil creation. It's a replacement story. We are most familiar with Jesus' words, which we'll investigate in the next two weeks, and the book of Revelation. So, let's start with the book of Revelation, and I'll, we'll attend to that later uh, in the month, next month as well. But the book of Revelation is filled with many images of the end of the world. Lots of artists have taken a crack at this. They've tried to capture what they see. So I'm going to ask you for just a few minutes' time to invest your imagination with me. Invest your imagination in this. When you think of the end of the world, what do you see? Do you see it like a fresco in an Orthodox cathedral? Do you see it with the beautiful blues? Even though you can see the devil in that picture, even though you can see the destruction in that picture, does it feel like something that takes place at some time in some mythological future? Where does your imagination take you? Does it take you to the destruction of the modern world where the cities that we know are thrashed to rubble before the eyes of an aching humanity? The places where we free, that we frequent and love destroyed as we stand by and nothing but desolation and destruction as far as the earth can see to the north, the south, the east, and the west? Well, where does your imagination take you? Or does it take you to the terrifying image of the four horsemen? where the white horse carries the evil one to wage war on the faithful, 
or the red horse who's carrying the one who will comes to wage spiritual war upon us and disrupt the whole world order? Or do you focus on the black horse that's carrying famine and disease and will collapse the world economic structures? Or do you look at that pale horse that's carrying death and hell is coming right behind it? Where does your imagination take you? Does it take you to the place where the hand of God letting humanity know that time has run out? Is it a picture in your mind of, that's indicating that the chance for the world to be one with God's order is complete now? It's over. The time is up. The end is here. Where, where does your imagination take you? I mean, if you're not one that sees things like this in art, are you one that sees the end times not in art but in music? I mean, Christian hymnody and the praise music that we sing here is, is, is ripe with, with end-of-the-world apocalyptic. God is replacing the world as we know it, the one he desires, imagery. A song written by Charles Wesley that we sang at our first service this morning, Rejoice the Lord is King, has this stanza. Rejoice in glorious hope. Jesus the judge shall come and take his servants up. That's apocalyptic, by the way. To their eternal home. We soon shall hear the archangel's voice. The trump of God shall sound rejoice. When you read words like that, where does your imagination take you? There's another apocalyptic hymn that we rarely sing is the apocalyptic hymn. It's known as the battle hymn of the republic. Do you remember this verse in it? He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out. That means shaking things down. The hearts of men before the judgment seat. We understand judgment. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him. Be jubilant my feet. Our God is marching on. Where in all of this does your imagination take you typically when we think of the end of the world our imagination has taken us to places that generate panic and fear and make our foundations tremble with uncertainty that's understandable because we're in love with the world it's what we know the whole time i've been alive i've been on the world i like it and same with most of you there's a few And as we begin this series, I want to make sure we have absolute clarity regarding the apocalypse or the apocalypses recorded in Scripture. Yes. Yes and absolutely, they include the routing of the current age. Yes and absolutely, they include the routing of the current age because it is sinful and it needs to be replaced with righteousness. And the book of Revelation from which uh, Alyssa read just a few moments ago has indeed fearful images. And it encourages, and this is the part we miss. It has lots of these fearful, freaky images like I put up there a few moments ago. And it encourages hope. It encourages hope among Christians in a period of utter hopelessness. You know, like COVID or derecho. You know, you know like a sin-filled world. Or you know where economic break, breaking points are. It encourages hope among Christians in a period of upper, uh, utter hopelessness, nurturing confidence that God's justice will ultimately triumph. Revelation makes clear that God has not abandoned world history. God has not abandoned world history, but continues to pursue redemption for his creation. 
So the fear presented to me by so many of you, and I, I don't know if this was going around, oh, I do know, it was going around the internet and that kind of stuff. The fear that was presented by so many of you uh, to me this spring and summer and fall from Second Chronicles chapter 7 does begin, and this is a prayer, the dedication of the temple. When I, these are God's words. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague upon my people, we need to understand that's not the full sentence. Of course, that would drive you to fear. It's scary. But listen to the rest of it. It brims with promise. If my people, says the Lord, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal the land. If those who love God seek him and put him above themselves, God says, I will forgive and heal. I will redeem you. I will make you brand new. I will protect you from any ill that comes towards you. See, the encouragement here is that if we live the best and faithful life, God will bless us beyond measure. Understand this. So, this morning, both with Vicki setting up our prayer time that we're going to work through on the next five weeks, ACTS, and do pick up one of those sheets on the way out today if you uh, desire one. It is on the church app as well, but they're there to pick up if you like them uh, in hard copy. And the background that I've given you this morning, this is what we're going to stand on the next few weeks. So here we go. So background complete. Now let's look at the scripture for the day. The book of Revelation begins with kind of a preface, but then in chapter 2 and 3, there are messages to seven churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, Ephesus, others, and Laodicea. Now, these seven churches are all located, they're real places, they're all located in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And each one of the messages to the church is specific. And most all of the messages proclaim, you know, have a call. There's some sort of an indictment on the, on the church, but there's also some sort of an encouragement or an affirmation. These things are not true in the message to Laodicea. The message to Laodicea is the only one that doesn't have a positive in it at all. The message to the church of Laodicea has two main parts to it. First, there's an indictment. You're guilty. And by the way, if you're reading Red Letter Bible, all of chapter 2 and 3 are red letters, which means the Lord himself is saying these things. So you are guilty. This is the indictment Jesus puts on the church at Laodicea. And he adds an admonishment. But the time is not over, but it will be soon. So you need to act right now. Not tomorrow, not next Friday. It's time to act now. The church of Laodicea at Laodicea is indicted because, according to Christ, who is the judge and jury, is spiritually lukewarm. They are neither hot nor cold. Now, that makes some sense because colloquial, colloquially in its era, the church of Laodicea was known as the city of compromise, which meant that was kind of their thing. Now, you know, you give a little here, you give a little there, and you end up with what? Not your main direction. So Christ finds Laodicea absolutely abhorrent. It's abhorrent to him that they are lukewarm. Their lukewarm spirituality is evidenced in the facts that they completely depend on themselves. They completely deceive themselves. So Laodicea, it's a rich place. 
Okay? They have lots of gold, so they refine gold, and Christ says, quit worrying about the gold you refine, get the gold from me. They're also rich because, I'm talking about financially, because they have discovered this salve that people put around your eyes. Now, if you've ever lived in the desert, you sometimes need some treatment for your eyes because your eyes dry up. So people are coming from here and there and everywhere to buy this eye salve. It's just a matter of history. And then it's also recorded that the church of Laodicea, the people in Laodicea, because of their wealth, they have the best clothes. So when it says in the, pur- in the Bible, either people are wearing purple or wearing white, that is a generational thing to the context of the day saying, oh, they're rich, okay? So Christ is, is saying to them, you're so rich, you, you deceive yourself. You are completely unaware of your spiritual poverty. And here's what Jesus does to make sure they know. I just want you to, to understand these things. When Jesus says, this is what I call you, he doesn't say blessed. This is what I see when I look at you, says Christ. I see you wretched, pitiable, naked, blind, and poor. That's what I see. You got all the money in the world, but what I see is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked people that need to repent of their lukewarmness in faith now. Now, if you were really paying attention when Alyssa read it, or maybe you haven't read this before, or you've read this before, understand how Christ treats these folks. He says, because you are neither, lo- neither hot, which is really on fire for me in faith, or really cold, which means you don't care at all about you, what's he going to do? Yeah, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Now, I, I am a biblical scholar. And while I've never read an article about this, it seems obvious that if you get hocked out of the mouth of Christ, it's not good, Right? If Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out, understand this. You don't have to go to seminary to understand that is not a good place to be. You want to be in concert with Christ. You want to be aside with Christ. You want to be with him. But Christ says, I'm going to spit you out. Because we spit out things that aren't worth keeping. Yikes. Now, So the historical context of Scripture is really useful when it hits us. So let's bring this home. Will the church of our age be indicted by Christ as spiritually lukewarm? Will we be indicted as being spiritually lukewarm? Now look at three things under here that make us move towards action. Will we be indicted as lukewarm because we've assimilated? Because we've assimilated to the culture? You know how to not notice things changing? Is just change a little bit at a time. Now, I've never eaten a frog, and I don't want to. I'm an Iowan. We eat cattle and beef here. (laughs) But if you want to boil a frog, apparently, they're pretty complacent about the whole thing. And they'll assimilate into the pot of water you put them in if you just turn up the pot a little bit at a time. And all of a sudden, what's happened to the frog? Well, some hillbilly's going to come eat it. That's what's going to happen. Or, sorry, maybe they're French delicacies. Sorry for those of you watching in France. Um, (laughs) The church is not to be like the world. It's to be in the world. We have to be in the world such as it was in the pot. But we've got to have our hand on the temperature control, making sure that it's not turned up. We have to make sure that we're not stirred in with the sinful nature of the world around us. The assimilated church parallels that 
of Laodicea. It's consumed with its own wealth and self-dependency. It loses the prophetic message of God's judgment because we accommodate ourselves. We have to be very careful about that. We have to be very careful about being, uh, not being assimilated because even though you know, we've had some struggle during COVID, we've had to shelter in place and all those kind of things, we have to remember the places we're sheltering are fairly nice. And the rides that we left those places we're sheltering in to get here are better than more than you know, 95% of the population of the world get places in. So, so we have to make sure we're in the world, but not of it. And, and will the church of our age be indicted by Christ as spiritually lukewarm because we've become complacent? Because we're just sitting still. The church needs to be filled with, with followers <coughs> of Jesus Christ, not fans of Jesus Christ. Kyle Eidemann wrote a book called Not a Fan, and in which he describes a fan of Jesus is just an enthusiastic admirer, kind of like I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. I love them, but I'm not going to go up on the hill to die for them. You know, that's, that's, that's what a fan is. You know, and the fan of Jesus might be the person that has, uh, you know, a, a fish or a Marian Methodist sticker on their car, or a cool cross or religious image tattoo, or might have religious jewelry that they wear. Fans want to be close enough to, to get all the benefits of Jesus, but not so close that it requires sacrifice on their part. Fans might be good with repeating a prayer or attending worship on, in person or online, but Jesus, understand this, has never been and was never interested in collecting admirers. As a matter of fact, when you watch the scriptures, what Jesus tended to do with admirers was send them home, to send them somewhere else. Jesus needs a church of followers. He needs people that believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. He needs people that believe that. But he also needs people that believe and will act upon what it says in Luke chapter 9. Anyone who desires to follow me must what? Deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Jesus needs us to be both disciples. We can't just, we just can't believe. We also have to follow. And so the question then comes to you and comes to me. Is there enough evidence? Listen to this. Is there enough evidence of your Christianity to convict you if it was illegal? Is there enough evidence that other people see in your life to convict you of Christianity if it were illegal. What, what evidence of your belief is clear for anybody that bounces into you or kind of comes to know you that's clear to, to all to see? What, what evidence is there? What evidence is of your following that's clear to see? There's an indictment here of Christianity, of mediocrity and complacence, of compromise. And it needs to be jolted or, or, or it'll be spit out of God's mouth. Will the church of our age be indicted by Christ as spiritually lukewarm because we're not persecuted? This is probably, to me, the most interesting thing I've found in researching. I mean, I kind of knew this, but there's this interesting Christian fact. Throughout Christian his history, throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, the lack of external pressure upon the church leads to mediocrity and complacency of faith. It's the courageous for Christ that are growing the kingdom throughout the centuries. Did you know that 80% of the people in the world today that are being persecuted for their faith are Christians? Did you know that? We tend to think of other religions, 
But 80% of the people that are being persecuted today for their faith are Christians. In Nigeria alone, 32,000, that's just slight of the population of Marion, but 32,000 Christians, defenseless Christians, have been butchered since 2009. 32,000 people killed for their faith in Nigeria, one country. In Nigeria, in the face of clear and present danger, the church of Jesus Christ is growing exponentially, actually by the millions, many years. Those are not fans of Christ. Those are followers. You see, we follow a crucified one, and the slogan of our faith is die daily, and the symbol of our faith is the cross. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful little book that I hope every Christian reads called Mere Christianity, 90 pages maybe, writes this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. I have come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want to have the whole tree down. So following Jesus is not a one-time decision. We do need to make a one-time decision, but following Jesus, being a real follower, is a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, dying-to-self and living in him type of, type of pro- uh, proposition. And the time to start is right now because Jesus offers us the best way of life. There is this second call in the scripture Alyssa read a couple moments ago. It says, after Christ indicts, after he indicts the church of Laodicea, and maybe we've heard some of that indictment ourselves today, but certainly don't understand that, that I'm coming to crush your spirits. I'm actually coming to call your spirits to this. Jesus makes this admonishment. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Christ admonishes us to open the door of our spirits, our hearts, to him. If you walked in that door today or any other day, you see this picture on the screen. The the, the picture of Christ at the door knocking. But if you take a look at this picture, it's a weird door. There's no external handle on that door. Could Christ blow the door open by his power? Absolutely. No question about it. But the admonishment that Christ is doing by knocking on the door is saying, you hear my voice and you hear me knocking. His very voice calls to everyone who knows him. And the choice he wants us to have is to reach for the handle or not to let him in. The opportunity is there for all. And which is why at the end of the proclamation to each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The time is now. There is not another time. The time to live the best and faithful life is now. I have no idea how many, but it's a lot. People have told me or spoken to me and said, man, Mike, I got to get right with God. And I know that. And the best time to get right with God is not some distant Thursday. The best time to get right with God is right now. The indictment here is a call to repentance, to, to bring ourselves like, like Christ, like, like the, the prayer at the, the, at the temple says, to bring yourself to your knees, to humble yourself and pray. 
Because here's what we know for sure. Not our last day. Because it comes in the blink of an eye. Your last moment may arrive any minute. How many of you do you need, how many do you need to know? How many people do you need to know that delayed this, that are gone now? How many of you, how many do you need to know? How many people do you really need to know that said to you or said to their family, I gotta get right with God, but waited too long? How many tomorrows are you sure of? We titled this sermon, Time's a Wasting, because it is. You know, deciding to follow Christ must be made with the urgency of the perspective of now, not some other time, not tomorrow, not Thursday. See, Christ is knocking on your door. And he's not going to play ding-dong ditch like we used to as kids. He's standing there, and he's rapping on that door, praying, hoping, desiring that you will let him in. It's his voice you hear in the ears of your soul. It's his hand persistently knocking on the door of your heart. Open it. Open it. And let Christ have your life. All of it. The best time, right now, right now. So let's take a few minutes while our musicians uh, give a musical response to the world. Let's the word. Uh, let's reflect on that and and drink in what's been uh, shared with you. <laughs>